My name's John. I am an alcoholic. And, uh, well, I'm tickled to be here at the, at the Kentucky State Convention. It's just been wonderful. I want to thank the committee for inviting me to, to come up. Uh, they've been great. It really has. And the speakers, and the speakers have been wonderful. Just wonderful. <laughs> I love I loved the way Tammy started it off. I had never heard her before. It was just great. And uh, Jerry's one of my heroes. We were in the same home group when I first moved to Dallas. And... Of course, what are you going to say about Clancy? He's Clancy. <laughs> He's wonderful. And Gail, Clancy's right. You really, you really shouldn't drink. <laughs> and Stephanie, the Alamon, has, has been a, a great a lot, just a tremendous amount of help to, to me and my wife uh, recently. She's, we love her a lot. So it's been great. Uh, then you got Nancy and her jokes. I'm a little disappointed she chose a... Here it is Sunday morning, I'm the spiritual speaker, and she chooses a sex joke to <laughs> kind of destroy my whole thought process. Because I used to have a problem with sex, you know? I did, and then after getting an AA and getting God-centered, I really come to see that sex is it's a beautiful, sacred, holy experience, really. That is. It's something that should be enjoyed and shared by the three people involved. <laughs> I can let you know how I'm growing in the program. I <laughs> Somebody asked me, they said, you know, you're the spiritual speaker. I don't know why on earth they picked me as a spiritual speaker. And I don't know why we think Sunday, every talk is a spiritual talk in AA, when it comes down to it. They said, would you talk about miracles? Miracles of this program. And I thought, well, it'll be a miracle if I do. Because, <laughs> <You know? laughs> see, there's, this is a miracle. You know, a miracle is something you can't explain. That's what makes it a miracle. If you could explain it, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? The very fact you can't explain a miracle is what makes it. And we try to explain things. You know, we try to explain AA, how AA works. You, know, you can't, because it's a miracle. You know, you'll try. You, you go to work Monday morning. Those of you got jobs. <laughs> and I said, have a good weekend? Oh, I had a great weekend. Great weekend. Went, went to a big convention. AA. Really? Yeah. Oh, it was wonderful. Down there, guy was talking down there, and he was doing real good, and then he got drunk. He got drunk, and he wrote hot checks, and he lost his family, lost his home, lost his business, ended up in the state penitentiary. God, it was great. <laughs> said, you active in that deal? Oh, yeah. Very active. Got a sponsor and everything. Who's your sponsor? Can't tell you. No, it's an anonymous program, you know. A lot like the guys that spoke over there. They're, he was doing real good. My sponsor was doing great. And then he, he got drunk, and he beat his wife, and he lost his family, lost his job, lost his house, lived outdoors, wrote a lot of hot checks, did all, ended up in the state penitentiary for two years in the state penitentiary, got out, never did get sober, kept getting drunk, ended up in the state mental hospital. That's my sponsor. <laughs> and I listen to every word he says. <laughs> <laughs> how's that work? Well, you can't explain how that works. Even the old-timers can't explain how that works. You know? We don't know how. And you'll try. You'll be at a newcomer. You ever do that in a newcomer's meeting? And you're sitting there in a newcomer's meeting, and some newcomer's talking, and he shares, oh, week ago tonight. He's crying. Week ago tonight. I'm in a hot tub. 
five naked women. All the booze I can drink. And some old timer chimes in, you never have to live like that again. <laughs> How's that work, you know? I don't know how it works, you know? I mean, because you can't explain how that how a miracle works. That's why it's... I mean, think what would happen if Moses tried to explain his miracles. Think about that, right? Moses, now Moses got the children of Israel. They've been held captive down in Egypt for 247 years. A lot of people didn't know that. I know that. So Moses down there is going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt back to the promised land. Y- y'all see that movie? <laughs> I know you didn't read the book, okay? So, <laughs> so Moses got the children of Israel, they go back to the they get stopped at the Red Sea. They're not across the Red Sea, they're talking about it. They're having a little baby, we're gonna build a boat, we're gonna walk around, how are we gonna get across this Red Sea? They don't know. All of a sudden the people of Israel come up and say, Moses, we got a problem. Pharaoh changed his mind. He's coming to get us. What are we gonna do? Moses, I don't know. Let me go talk to God, find out what he wants to do. So Moses goes talk to God, he comes back in, he says, he calls he goes in his tent, he calls his consultants in. Now he's got his consultants in there, he's got his He's got his medical consultant. He's got his psychiatric consultant. He's got his legal consultant. You've got to have your engineering consultant. And of course, you need your PR consultant in there. So he's got his consultant in there, and he says, Okay, I've talked to God. Here's the plan. I'm going to stand up on this rock, and I'm going to wave the staff over the Red Sea. And I don't know how this is going to happen. The Red Sea is just going to part. It's going to open up and part like that. And then I know it's underwater now, but when it parts, that ground will be dry. And then all of us are going to march through there. Now, there were 3,713,642. A lot of people didn't know that. I know that. All three million of us are going to march through there. And then when Pharaoh comes out to get us, the water's going to fall down and drown them all. What do you think of the plan? <laughs> Can't see those consultants in there. The medical consultant says, Oh, God, Moses. Don't do it. Don't do it, Moses. Even if you think, Moses, we have a lot of old people. We have a lot of old people here. These old people, they got asthma. They got asthma problems. You park there and say, I don't care. If it's dry ground, it's going to be humid. That asthma is going to flare up. Moses, rotten plan. Don't even try it, Moses. Terrible plan. Psychiatric consultant says, Moses, rotten plan. Don't do it, Moses. Don't do it. Forget about those old people. Hell, they're old. They're going to die anyway. What about these youngsters? We got a lot of youngsters with us here. These youngsters, you realize, you stack that water up, you make those youngsters walk through there. On, it's going to scar them emotionally. Hell, we'll have to form an adult children of Moses just to get them through the rest of their lives. Moses, rotten plan. Engineering guy says, Moses, don't do it. Can't do it. You know how many pounds per square inch? Legal consultant says, Moses, don't do it. Other side of the Red Sea, that's a foreign country. We got immigration problems. They're going to send us back here. Don't do it, Moses. <laughs> Only guy on Moses' side, PR consultant. He says, Moses, baby, love that plan. Love that. You can pull that off. I can promise you five pages in Genesis. (laughs) Well, you can't explain miracles, you know. You just can't do it. I submit to you that it's a lot easier for God to part the Red Sea than it is for an alcoholic to get sober. See, the Red Sea doesn't argue with God. It just does what God wants it to do. I like to, I like to have a little debate, you know, with God. And I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a very normal environment. I'm not supposed to be here today. You should have some other speaker. I'm supposed to be a very solid citizen that has never got drunk in his life. I grew up in a very normal environment, very middle-income America type stuff. Never drank. Didn't drink. Didn't drink until I was 25 years old. 
and went off, got married, had children, never drank. Finally, Stuart called me up, a guy I was hanging out with. Stuart, my second daughter was born. Stuart congratulated me and said, we're going to go out drinking. And I had my first drunk. And uh, over, over celebrating the birth of my, of my daughter. We go out to a pri- this is in Salt Lake City. We go out to a private club in Utah. Got to be go to a private club in Utah doing drinking. We get this private club. It's called the Winery. It's right across from the Salt Palace. You walked down these steps, walked in there. I had my first drunk, and it was a great drunk. I don't know what I drank. A lot of people know what they drank. I don't know what I drank. They bring a drink over. It's light, light drink. Got a cherry in it. I drink it down. Next drink's dark, dark colored drink. Got a twist around it. I just drink it down. Just drank whatever they brought. And I had a great drunk. It was great. Dance. Oh, God. I can dance. <laughs> dan- dan- dance with two lesbians. <laughs> well, they're out there dancing together, you know. And I thought, they probably want me to join them. <laughs> so, I went out there dancing. And then they, then they left together, and there I was alone. Yeah. But I learned something. No rejection. When you're drunk, you're just drunk. Sat down, drank the next drink, sitting in front of me. Got up the next morning, really felt pretty good. No hangover. I called up Stuart and said, I had a ball. He said, you did. You, you flat got after it. I said, what, uh, you going to have a drink today? He said, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it. I'm probably going to stop and have one. I said, what time? He said, I got to work till 3 o'clock. I said, let's meet at 3.30. So I meet at 3.30, got drunk again. I never, from that first drunk on, I never, I never drank socially. I never went and had one or two drinks and went home. I like to drink to get drunk. That's what I do. I drink to get drunk. And, uh, and my life's changing. And in order to understand the miracles in my life, you have to understand the very first miracle. And that very first miracle was me getting sober because I, I, I just didn't see any reason why not to drink. People are telling me that I got, I got, I got to stop drinking. And then they're telling me, I mean, just six months, I've been drinking six months, I get my first DWI. And I thought that was very unfair. That the, uh, the mothers were publishing, they got mad. Mothers got mad about drunk drivers. And they were putting a lot of articles out in the newspaper back then about drunk drivers. And I read an article, only one in 2,000 drunk drivers gets picked up DWI. I read that and I thought, that's pretty good odds. <laughs> if I get drunk every single night, I got like five, six years before I need to worry about getting picked up. I've been drinking six months, I get popped. Hey, creeper, what are the odds of that? Uh, well, I, just, I got like 11, 12 years before I need to worry about my next DWI. You know? <laughs> but they're telling me I got this drinking problem. I asked Stuart. They told me I'm an alcoholic. My, my wife said, you're, you're an alcoholic. I said, what's an alcoholic? How do you really know you're an alcoholic? I asked Stuart, do you think I'm an alcoholic? My drinking buddy, Stuart, said, do you like the way alcohol tastes? I said, no, not at all. He said, then you're not an alcoholic. I said, thank God for that piece of information, you know. Now, he explained to me that alcoholics like the way it tastes. It's not the effect. It's the taste. So he said, if you start to like the way it tastes, then you may want to look at it. I said, I'll keep an eye. I'll keep an eye on that, you know. But they give you that little test. You know, they give me this little test to take. These 20 questions. I want you to know I can take that test and I can pass it non-alcoholic. I did it three times. You know? Because I lie. You know? In fact, I'm so good at lying, I don't know I'm lying. 
I don't. They ask me, does alcohol cause problems in your life? No. No, I got a lot of problems. But alcohol ain't one of them. <laughs> does alcohol cause you problems at work? No. No, I got problems at work. It's philosophical. The boss thought that when you work for him, he wanted you to work during the day. <laughs> All day long. I work better at night. It's a philosophical problem. Alcohol caused you problems in your marriage. No. Now I got problems in marriage. Alcohol's got nothing to do with it. It's, again, philosophical. My wife thought that when you get married, like she wanted to be married seven days a week. I mean, all week long she wanted to be married. I kind of like five-day week marriage. Stay married Monday through Friday. Separate Friday, party all weekend, go home Monday morning. That's, she didn't want to be married that way. And she was fanatical about it. <laughs> Alcohol's got nothing to do with that. I had a timing problem. When you got a timing problem, you're just in trouble. Because your, your timing's off. And you don't know whether your, your timing's off because you're running ahead of schedule or behind schedule. I mean, like, I'd get arrested, and I'd think, ah, oh, you even creepers. You know what, like, a minute. Just, if I'd have been a minute sooner, that cop would not have been on that intersection, and I'd have been through there, and it would have been okay, you know? And then I'd think, well, maybe I should have been a minute late, and then he'd have been through that intersection, and I wouldn't, he wouldn't have seen me, and it would have been okay, you know? So, when your time is off, you don't know whether to speed up or slow down. So I'd sit at the bar, and I'd think... I wonder if it's time for me to go. <laughs> it's just hard when your timing's off. It's just hard. Finally figured out my real problem. Uh, I'm living in Utah. Utah's at a high altitude. I mean, you saw the Olympics. It's in the mountains. A lot of snow. High. High in the mountains. Scientific known fact, people who live at high altitudes for prolonged periods of time have thinner blood than people that live at low altitudes. Okay? I saw that on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> well, I've been living in Utah my whole life. I got to have thin blood. You party hard on thin blood, you have a problem. What I need to do is get to sea level. <laughs> Thicken up my blood a little bit and I'd probably be okay. So I called a buddy in Seattle, sea level. Talking about these problems I got. He said, man, take a year off, come up here. I said, well, I don't want to pose on you and Gail and your five kids. He says, no imposition, so I'll be, be there Tuesday. So I moved to Seattle. I'm not doing anything up in Seattle, just doing a little drinking, working on thickening up my blood. And, uh, you know, the next logical thing you want to do in that condition, yeah, you're going to want to gamble. Okay, Best time to gamble is when you're unemployed. And... Uh, so I started playing poker. They had poker houses up there. I started playing poker up there, and I thought, when you're a big shot and a high flyer like me, you want to be where the real action is. So I started playing poker, and I thought, I'm going to move down to Nevada. That's where the casinos are. That's, that's lower than sea level. You get thick blood down in Nevada. <laughs> so I moved down there, bounced around Las Vegas, ended up in Reno, Tahoe area. Wasn't doing anything, just doing a little drinking, playing a little poker, working on thickening up my blood. And... 
Buddy called me from Utah, shouldn't have gone, invited me over. No, shouldn't have gone. Doing real good in Reno. But I go over there and uh, met him at the One More Time Club. <laughs> it's a great club. And I found her. She's sitting at the bar waiting. They're always sitting at the bar waiting for you. And I fell in love, wanted to take her out Saturday. She couldn't go out Saturday or Sunday. Had to stay till Monday. I was supposed to go home Sunday. Should have gone home Sunday. Stayed till Monday. So we go we go out Monday, and it was a bad date, terrible date. You know you got a bad date when you invite them to dinner, and then they really want to eat. Because <laughs> I never eat when I drink, you know. You don't put out a fire, you just started. And uh, so we go out, and I'm a gentleman, so every time I order me a whiskey, I order a glass of wine. Well, the woman's busy eating. She ain't keeping up. Her wine stacking up on her. Now, to keep me embarrassed, I got to drink my whiskey and drink her wine. It was just a bad, bad date. She wanted, to take me, she wanted me to take her home. I wanted to take her home. She was no fun at all. So I took her home, knocked on Price's door. It was 10.30 at night. He opened the door and he said, I thought you had a date. And I said, that damn woman. And I went in there and I bought a gallon of wine. Because she said she liked wine, so I bought a gallon. And we drank that wine all night. That Monday was October 6, 1981. And I said, now tomorrow night we're going to hit this town one more time and then I'm out of here. This high altitude drink will get me in trouble. So we were out on Tuesday, October 7, 1981. We started the Joker Club. Uh, Joker Club wasn't a private club. It was a, it was a 3-2 beer bar. It wasn't a very... I'll, I'll be honest about the Joker Club. Uh, it was a topless joint. <laughs> and it wasn't a very fancy topless joint. It was, the Joker Club had one dancer in the whole place. <laughs> And you had to be drunk to appreciate her. I mean, it was just <laughs> tough place. About, about six, six o'clock, we decided to go watch the fashion show at the Hilton. And I remember the fashion show. And then I black out. I black out a lot. I black out all the time. Almost every time I drink, I black out. Some blackouts are real scary. Some aren't too bad. There are two factors that determine how scary a blackout is. The first factor is how long are you blacked out. The longer you're blacked out, the more scary they are. And the second factor is, what are you doing when you come out of your blackout? <laughs> that, that, has a lot of, that contributes a lot to how scary that blackout is. Well, I wasn't blacked out that long. But I came out of my blackout at the worst time. The worst. Without a doubt, those of you blackout know that the worst time to come out of a blackout is when you're talking to the cops. Okay? <laughs> Because you don't have a clue where you are in the conversation. You know, you really don't. And you can't ask. You can't say, what are we doing here? Because then they know. You know? So you gotta got to figure out what do they want, what do they cop to, you know, without asking. It's very difficult. And I, I finally found out they wanted my driver's license. I didn't have a driver's license. They'd taken that three DWIs earlier, you know. And, and uh, so I'm telling the cop, listen, I'm just going to go over there. In fact, I'm glad you stopped because that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to leave my car here. I'll go over there. Pick up my car tomorrow. No problem. In fact, I'll bet you that's where my driver's license is, right over there. And uh, he wouldn't let me go. Finally ran my license plate, found out who it was, arrested me, and I'm in lockup. And this time they're really upset because I can't bond out. Can't bond out. See, I knew the system. No matter what you're arrested for, doesn't matter. You plead not guilty, right? Not guilty. And then uh, back then it was just drunk stuff. You go to the OR purse, get out on your OR. Or you may post a spot. I think the biggest bond I posted was 50 bucks for drunk stuff. And uh, then they give you a, a court date, 
you go get you an attorney, and you start that postponing process, right? Keep that, keep that attorney postponing court date. Postpone, postpone, postpone. What you're doing is you're hoping the cop dies. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Mine never died. He never died. They always show up in court. And, and then the day before court, when the, uh, when the lawyer says, okay, now tomorrow's court, no more postponement. 10, 10 o'clock, be there in the morning. You want to be sure on the day before court, you move. No, that's why. And then what court, I just moved. So I had all these failure to appear. And they said, no, we're not letting you out. You never come back. You're going to go to court. So I'm in lockup. Don't like lockup. Don't like nothing about lockup. And uh, finally, a buddy of mine named Stan comes down to see me. Now, Stan had a lot of money and a lot of influence. And I grew up with Stan my whole life. Went to school together. And Stan came down to see me. Not an alcoholic, but nothing about AA or alcoholism. But he said, now, I've talked to some friends. I can get you out. But the only way I'll do that is if you promise me you go to treatment because they're going to put you in my custody. And so the only way I'll get you out is if you promise me you go to treatment because you're sick and you need help. And I said, oh, Stan, bless you. You are so right. I don't know what it is, Stan. I go down there and I get drunk in those bars. I start drinking and I get in all kinds of trouble. I guess I'm an alcoholic, Stan, and I need help. But I, I can't get any in here. He says, well, I'll get you out. Now, I had no intention of not drinking. I didn't want to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm just getting out of jail. And I'll do or say anything to get out of jail. So I had to stay with Stan. Next day, we get up, he throws me the yellow pages. And he says, you can go anywhere you want to go, but you've got to go to treatment. So I'm looking in the yellow pages. I find these treatment centers. They had a lot of treatment centers. And I caught this one, one place. And I said, I need to come in for a little treatment. The guy said, Okay, she said, do you have any insurance? I said, no. I hadn't worked for three and a half years, you know, I don't have any insurance. She said, well, it's, it's $12,000. I said, hell, I don't want to stay all year. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was very frustrating. I called this one place, they wanted $18,000. I said, honey, listen, if I had $18,000, I wouldn't need your damn treatment. You know? Very frustrating. So I called this one place, and I said, I need to come in for a little treatment. Gal says, okay. And I said, no, I need to know something. I don't have any insurance. She says, okay. I said, well, how much is it? And she's a salesperson, so she's going to tell me the benefits first, right? So she says, well, when you check in here, uh, we apply for uh, food stamps. But you get room, board, and therapy. And we have two kinds of therapy, both individual therapy and group therapy. And we apply for those food stamps to credit those food stamps to the bill. And then... We get some state aid, so uh, if you do some work chores that we assign you around here, we pay you a buck fifty a day. We can either pay you that in cash, or you can buy cigarettes with it. Cigarettes were a buck and a quarter a pack back then, out of the machine. And uh, if you applied everything to the bill, it'd take it down to be about five bucks a day. I couldn't believe it. I said, uh, "How long is your waiting list?" So those other places that want twelve, eighteen thousand, they had thirty to sixty day waiting lists. I said, how long is your waiting list? She says, we have a bed for you tonight. <laughs> I don't really need to come tonight. You know? <laughs> she says, I think you ought to come tonight. And I got a problem with this place. Think about that. They got bargain rates. Nine bucks a day, room board therapy. They can't fill their beds. Now they're high pressure me to get me to come in. I'm a consumer here. I got my rights. <laughs> I said, listen, you make my reservation for Saturday. Or you can just forget the whole damn deal. 
So she made them for Saturday. And I didn't drink. I just stayed with Stan. Didn't drink. Saturday came. Drove down there. I drove down there and I parked in that parking lot. I sat in that parking lot all day. Watching them go in and out of there. In and out of there. I wanted to see what kind of person you know, goes to a $9 a day jitter joint. You know? <laughs> I'm watching those guys go in there. And you know what those guys going in there? They were alcoholics. You could tell looking at them. said, look at that guy. They look like alcoholics most of luck. Y'all don't look like alcoholics. Those guys going in there look like alcoholics. And I wasn't an alcoholic, but it fit my budget, so I checked in. <laughs> and, and nothing happened. I just saw a whole bunch of papers. Got my room. It was a nice place, clean place. Uh, I was on set. Sunday came. I had my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. Two guys from outside came in to chair this meeting. There were 36 of us, all men, sat in the lunchroom. And uh, I had a first, my first AA meeting. These two guys talked for a long time. I didn't listen to a thing they said. Don't know what they said. Didn't listen to any of it because I'm watching everybody else. How's everybody else act? Because see, I'm a real chameleon. I'm going to go someplace. I'm going to watch how we're supposed to act, and I'm going to act that way. You know. So I'm watching everybody else, and these guys that nobody wanted to be there. They're smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, not paying a bit of attention. So I did the same thing, and uh, they got these two guys got through talking. They started down the road. It was going to be a discussion meeting. First guy introduced himself. Said, "My name is Joe B. I'm an alcoholic. I'll pass." Second guy said, my name's Jim S. I'm an alcoholic. I'll pass. I caught on real quick to AA. What they do in AA, they give their first name, last initial, admit to the group that they're alcoholic, and then pass. Okay, there's something magical about admitting to this group. If you admit to the group you're alcoholic, if you are alcoholic, it'll just like take that burden of alcoholism off your shoulder, etc. That must be the deal. They had it written on the wall, admitted you were powerless over alcohol. So it got to me, I did it right. I said, my name is John A., I'm an alcoholic, and I'll pass. Nothing happened. Not a damn thing happened. Uh, well, obviously, I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, if I do have a little bit of alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous must be for real simple-minded people, if this works. <laughs> Nobody with any brains like I got. Now, as distorted a perception that is of AA, that was my perception of AA. It ain't for me. So that was on Sunday. Monday, I got to meet my counselor, Dale. Spent an hour with Dale, lovely lady. She wanted me to stay two months. I said, Dale, 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 Dale. <laughs> I've been here all weekend. Okay? I've been talking to these folks. They've been telling me how this program works. They're alcoholics. They told me they, I have no reason to doubt they said they are. I don't know whether I'm an alcoholic or not, but they've told me that that first month you're here, how you're going to break me down. You're going to get me to be open and honest. We can save a month right there. Because I've always been open and honest in everything I do. And I got a great mind. It's like a steel trap. I remember everything. Photographic memory is scary as hell. I did real well in school. You can get my transcripts. Look at my school transcripts. did real well. And I'm busy. I just can't. She said, you're busy? I said, yes, I'm busy. She looks through her papers and she says, now where, where are you working? Well, I'm not working, but I'm busy. <laughs> Isn't that true about us? Alcoholics are the most busy, unemployed people you ever want to meet in your life. <laughs> they should go to the meeting Monday. Now, the guy's unemployed. He's got nothing to do but get to the meeting, and he's late. <laughs> and he said, where have you been? <laughs> Hell, I've been busy. You know? <laughs> I don't know what we do, but we're busy doing it. You know, we really are. So I said, I'm gonna, I'll give you two weeks. Because, see, I'm not going to quit drinking. That's not what I'm doing there. I'm just doing treatment time. And I figured treatment time's better than jail time. 
I mean, I don't want to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm just doing treatment time. I just want to get through this, get back through, and get on with my life. Now, I don't tell anybody that, but that's what I'm doing. So she listens to all that stuff. She says, well, we'd better hurry then. I said, yeah, baby, right, better hurry. <laughs> Tuesday, I got to go to group. I love group. Just love group. A lot of fun. You just, group's different than AA meeting. Totally different, because there's cross-talkings permitted in group. You know? And you can talk more than once. Now, it's not like AA. You know, when you're in an AA discussion meeting and you pass, well, you pass. Wait till next meeting, okay? <laughs> but in group... I learned that group lingo real quick. You know, some guy's talking. I learned how you that group lingo. He's talking. You interrupt and say, oh, come on, man. Get honest. I love that kind of stuff. Come on, man. You're in denial. I love that stuff. I've never seen much good come from it, but it's fun to do. You know, it really is. That was on Tuesday. Wednesday is alcoholic education seminar. I don't like movies about drug addiction and alcoholism. They're boring. Even today, I don't want it. They're boring to me. What do I want to watch a movie about that stuff for? So I'm watching this movie. And all my pride, all my ego, all my contempt prepared not to like this movie. And the name of the movie they're showing was uh, I'll Quit Tomorrow. I'm watching this movie, and it tore me apart. I couldn't believe it. I related to everything in that movie. It's like they'd made a movie of my life, and they were showing it to the group. I did everything that guy did. I talked the way that guy talked. I dressed the way that guy dressed. I acted the way that guy acted. I drank. I drank the way the guy drank. I related to everything in that movie. And I knew the gig was up. What happened to me that night is I quit looking for that definition. What's an alcoholic? How do you know you're an alcoholic? I later found out in AA, see, we don't have a definition of an alcoholic. I could not define an alcoholic for you tonight. I don't know how to do that. What we have in AA is a description. So you can't argue with a description. You can argue with the definition. That's why Webster's got ten definitions for every word, right? But you can't argue with the description. The most powerful tool that God has given Alcoholics Anonymous is our description of the alcoholic. Because it's that description, as the alcoholic relates to it, that seems to have the power to literally strip everything that separates the alcoholic from himself. And I could see me that night like I'd never seen... I could see me that night like my mother saw me. I could see me that night like my ex-wife saw me was I could see me and I knew the gig was up. That was my moment of clarity when I knew the gig was up as I related to that. You know? The most powerful tool we have is that description. Think how important that description is. Two-thirds of our book, two-thirds of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is what? Descriptions of alcoholics and the stories. I mean, why'd they put all those stories in there? Just to make a big book? (laughs) No, it's that important because that description of the alcoholic relates to it that seems to have that power to strip everything that separates the alcoholic from himself. And I wasn't happy about it. Sometimes you'll hear from the poet and people will say how relieved they were to know what their problem was and that they were alcoholic. That was not my experience. I was petrified, scared to death because, my God, I'm an alcoholic. My whole life just changed. It's just changed. Because now i like, I got to go get a job. You know? And how am I going to function in a world that scares me to death? How am I going to do that? I don't know how to do any of that. And I cried all night. Because I'm an alcoholic. I don't know how, now what am I going to do? And I stayed in that place six weeks. Couldn't stay two months. Too busy. But I stayed six weeks. I got out of there the first December, and they said, now, part of the recovery program is aftercare. You need aftercare. 
And you're living in Reno, we're in Salt Lake, 800 miles, you can't come back here three times a week for aftercare, so we're going to prescribe you go to AA for your aftercare. And they gave me an intergroup's phone number in Reno, Nevada. So I drove back to Reno, I knew two things when I got back to Reno. I know I'm an alcoholic, I don't want to drink. I know that. And the second thing was, A's got nothing to offer. I mean, because we go there, we give our first name, last initial, admit to the group you're alcoholic, and then pass. I mean, what's that? I've done that. Don't know why we've got to keep doing that. But I don't want to drink. So the first day I'm back in town, I call AA, intergroup, and a guy answers the phone, and I said, uh, my name's John A, and I'm an alcoholic. He said, I'm Bruce, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, great, Bruce, I just wanted to call. Uh, I just got out of treatment in Salt Lake City. I'm living in Reno, Nevada, you know, and I wanted to call and check in. <laughs> I thought they had me on a computer, you know. And if you don't show up, they put out a failure to appear notice on you, then you screw the <laughs> He said, I'm glad you're here. He said, you want to go to a meeting tonight? It was Thursday night. I said, yeah, I can go to a meeting. It's Thursday night. You probably want to meet me. He said, I'm not going to go tonight, but there's a men's stag at the Hotel Riverside Casino, third floor Sierra room, starts at 8.30. I said, I don't know right where that is. I'll be there. I'll be there early so we can meet. He said, well, I'm not going to go. I said, well, call him. You know, and let them know that John A. is coming to their meeting tonight. He said, they'll be there, don't worry about it. So I show up 20 after 8, first resentment now collects anonymous. I mean, I called, made reservations, told them I'm coming. He did not call and tell them John A. was coming to their meeting. There was nobody there reception saying, oh, you must be John A. Here's your chair. No, just some guy smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. I got my coffee, sat down. Pretty soon an old guy named Red got up to chair the meeting. Red, Red looked like an alcoholic. Only had 19 years in. And he, and he talked for a long time. And then he shut up. And then they started down the road. There was a discussion. I mean, these guys were talking. These guys, they didn't, they didn't pass. They were talking. Okay? Now, I have no idea what they were talking about. There's nothing we talked about in treatment. But they were talking. They, didn't even, they couldn't even introduce themselves right. Some of them did not give their last initial. They said, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> You're supposed to give your last initial. <laughs> Guy didn't give his last initial. You're supposed to do that. Some of them gave their last name. They said, my name's John Allred. I'm alcoholic. Jesus. <laughs> what does he think anonymous means, man? I thought, if he's not going to respect his anonymity, I will. I won't look at the guy. Don't look. I won't look at the guy. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't want to know who you are. If I see you on the street, I'm not even going to say hi. This is anonymous. We can wink at each other. That's about as far as we're going to go. And they're talking about stuff that I have no idea what they're talking about. It's nothing we talk about. I mean, I sat halfway through that meeting. Nobody mentioned we got this XY chromosome problem. It became real clear to me. These guys have not been to treatment. So I got my turn. I thought I'd help them. And I did it right, too. I said, my name is John A. I'm an alcoholic. And I qualified. I said, listen, guys, I just got out of treatment over in Salt Lake City. And I have the latest, most current, up-to-date information. <laughs> so my second resentment, Red cut me off, said, thank you, John. We're on the next guy. <laughs> I thought, son of a bitch is jealous. <laughs> I know stuff he don't know. That's his problem. 
After me, some guys come up and shook my hand. They said, we hope you come back. Said, I'll be back. They need me. <laughs> now, Chuck Chambers used to say, you know, every man's my teacher. Some people teach me what to do. Some people teach me what not to do. Please keep in mind, most of what I share from the podium is what not to do. Because <laughs> I've done this deal all wrong. I don't know where I was when somebody said 90 meetings in 90 days. Not the way I did it. I did one meeting a week. Every Thursday, I'm down at my main stack. Now, they will not let me share. But I keep going back. I figure I'm a hell of a lot younger than Red. He's going to die, then I get to share. You know? <laughs> now, let me tell you what happens when you go to one meeting a week. You haven't tried that. They told me in treatment. One of the great things they told me, they said, John, don't drink. Okay. If you don't drink, you're going to feel better. Just don't drink, you'll feel better. That's true. But see, they didn't explain to me what that meant. If you don't drink, you will feel better. You're going to feel everything better. You're going to feel all the pain, all the anger, all these things. You're going to feel that shit a whole lot better, you know? So I'm walking around Reno feeling better going nuts. I mean, I, I drink when I feel better, you know? I don't want to feel that stuff. So I'm going to my one meeting a week feeling better going nuts. I'm down at my men's stag meeting on Thursday. It was, it was Christmas Eve. And they said, now tomorrow's Christmas Day. You got nowhere to go for Christmas dinner. You can go to the Dryers Club, Skid Row Clubhouse over on Wells. You can go over there and have free, it's free, no charge. Well, I had nowhere to go, so I went to the Dryers Club, found it. I ate, it was good. And I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of coffee. <laughs> Guy spotted me. You know those old timers when they spot you? And you know because their eyes kind of glaze over. <laughs> and they start to salivate. Oh, newcomer. <laughs> you know? And he comes, I could see him coming walking over, and I saw... Not my kind of guy. He's not. I like cool guys, okay? This guy's an old guy. Fat old guy. Big nose, funny. Nothing cool about the guy at all. He come walk over. I said, look at this. You look at this guy. Come over here talk to me. Look at this guy. He comes over. He introduces me. His name's Don. At that time, he was a coordinator of intergroup. I, thought, I didn't know what intergroup. I thought, well, I'm glad they found something for you to do. <laughs> So I'm talking to Don. After talking to Don for just a few minutes, it became real clear. Don had not been to treatment. <laughs> so I started to tell Don all about stuff they don't to talk about in my home group. He gets a funny look on his face and he says, uh, We have a, would you like to go to a meeting with me tonight? And I said, Well, hell, Don, it's Friday. I go Thursdays over to Men's Stack. <laughs> he says, We got a meeting every night in Reno. And uh, in that couple weeks I've been going there to those meetings, I'd heard something about spiritual program. This is a spiritual program. So I thought, okay, it's a spiritual program. Hell, it's Christmas. I can go twice this week, won't hurt. <laughs> so Don comes, gets me. We go out to the state hospital. They got a meeting at 7 o'clock out there at the state hospital. We get out there, and I love that meeting because they walk in and they give you a raffle ticket in that meeting. And at the end of the meeting, they raffle off a big book or as Bill sees it every Friday night. So I get my raffle ticket, walk in the meeting. Women in the meeting. First meeting I've been to with women in the meeting. I didn't know that as a man. I thought it was a man's deal, you know. First meeting I've been. <laughs> women immediately adopted that as my home group. <laughs> my new home group. Why would I go Thursdays to the men's stag when I can go here Friday? My new home group, baby. I'll be here every Friday. So they had some meeting. I don't know what they talked about because I'm busy praying. Because I have this great mind and I read real fast. Okay, I had, I had forgot to get a big book. Now, this is it, man. It's Christmas Day. It is Christmas. I'm probably the only guy here without a big book. 
This is going to be God's gift to me on Christmas. I'm winning the book. I'm going to win the book. I pray it all means that. By the time that meeting's over, God can give that book to nobody. Nobody's been praying like I've been praying. I want the book. <laughs> Book's my book. <laughs> then the meeting they had the raffle. Third resentment knock like no. Some little greater lady, 25 years sober, wins my book. What's she doing winning my book? You know, 25 years old, so old, can't even see to read. Wins my book. I'm storming out. Before I get out of there, that little lady comes up and gives me that book. That's where I got my big book. And I took that book home that night. Okay, I used to say that I took the book home that night and I read it from cover to cover. So if you ever heard me say that, or if you ever get hold of, a, of an old, old tape, or I said that on the tape, please believe me that, that when I said that, hell, I believed it. <laughs> <laughs> then I got involved in the big book, said, you wouldn't believe the chapters they got in that book. <laughs> they got a chapter in the book, Chapter to the Wives. You know, well, I wasn't a wife, didn't have a wife, didn't want a wife. Didn't read that chapter, okay? They got a chapter to the employer. Hell, I'm not an employee. Okay? Didn't read that chapter. They got one in there, chapter to the agnostic. Well, I wasn't agnostic. I knew God real well. Didn't read that chapter. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you just read, you know, chapter 3 and chapter 5, you can read that tonight. It won't take that long to do it. It really won't. The next day, this guy calls me on the phone, takes me to another meeting. Every day, this guy's calling me on the phone, taking me to a meeting, and I don't really want to go. Okay? I think, how does he know I want to go to that meeting? I don't want to go to that meeting. But you know what? He's the only guy talking to me in AA. And I thought, if I don't go, I stand him up. Because he doesn't ask. He just calls and says, pick you up in 20 minutes. Click, hang up. I think, if I don't show up, what's he going to say? He's going to talk behind my back. I'll never be able to go to AA again. He'll talk about me behind my back. I better go. Better go. So I'm going to AA. And an interesting thing happened. Fascinating. Now, at that time, I had no sponsor. Hadn't worked any steps. The only change in my life is I'm not drinking, I'm going to a meeting every single day. That's the only change. And there's a fascinating thing that happened. I not only feel better, but I feel good. And I hadn't felt those two things at the same time in years. The only change is I'm not drinking and going to a meeting every single day. And all of a sudden, sobriety started to put on flesh and bones. You know? And I started meeting other alcoholics in, in the program, and I started making friends with them. And, it was embarrassing. I'll never forget, man. Don would come by and get me. We'd get in the car. Because I was getting excited about AA. We'd get in the car and we're driving to a meeting. And I feel like a little kid. And I'd say, Don, you think we can go get ice cream tonight? <laughs> we'll see. <Yeah. laughs> I'm hanging out intergroup during the day, drinking coffee, meeting other alcoholics, going to meeting every night, and it's just exciting, and, and, and I don't know why, you know, but I'm excited about this sobriety deal now, and meeting these other alcoholics, and going to meeting every night, and a week later, it's Thursday night, I'm going to a men's stag meeting, it was New Year's Eve, a week later, New Year's Eve, I'm at intergroup, drinking coffee, going to a men's stag meeting, talking to Don, and the phone ring, I grabbed the phone, young kid named Glenn, Glenn's 17 years old, wants to know how to stay sober New Year's Eve. I said, why? <laughs> I mean, Glenn, you're 17. It's New Year's Eve. We're going to be here tomorrow. You don't need to sober up on New Year's Eve. 
Don grabs that phone away from me. It's when he passed the rule of central office, you have to have six months of more sobriety to answer the phone. He put a sign up, must have six months to answer a phone, you know. Don talked to him, I don't know what he said, gave him his phone number, did not give him my phone number. But the next day, Don calls me and says, hey, Glenn stayed sober last night, wants to go to a meeting today. I thought, great, put my first 12-step call. This is great, man. I'm excited. So Don comes gets me. We go get Glenn. We're taking Glenn out of the state hospital. And we're driving out there. And damn it, Don's just driving the car. He's not preparing Glenn for AA. I thought, hell, I got to do it all. I just, I just got to do it all. So I started to tell Glenn all about AA. Glenn, you're going to love this meeting. For two months, but you get women your first meeting right out of that. And I've been to several groups in Reno. And this group has the best-looking women. You want to come back here every single Friday night with men. It's going to be wonderful. And then when we get there, Glenn, they're going to give you a raffle ticket. Hang on to that raffle ticket, because at the end of the meeting, they raffle off a big book, or as Bill sees it. And if God loves you, you'll win the book. <laughs> Don just drives to the meeting, you know. So we get to the meeting, we get a raffle ticket, we get our coffee, we sit down. They had, I don't know what they talk about, it was some discussion meeting, because I'm praying for Glenn. I thought, come on, God. God, just let Glenn win that book. If Glenn can win that book. After I've prepared him like I have. Now that's going to be proof that God is working in his life and he'll stay sober forever. And, and not that it really matters, but you know, I would have a 100% 12-step call success rate. <laughs> I'll be able to write articles in the grapevine how to have a 100% 12-step call success rate. It'd be wonderful. So at the end of the meeting, they had the raffle, raffle off the big book. I won the book. Don turned to me and said, see how that works? I said, yeah, I gave it to Glenn. That's where Glenn got his book. Okay? And, and Glenn's sober today because uh, I gave him that book. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that, uh, that experience early sobriety taught me a lot because it taught me how God works. See, God works through people. Whenever God works, it's a win-win deal. There's always two winners when God works, minimum. God works through people. See, I could have won the big book the first night. There'd have been one winner, me. But that little old lady won by being able to share with me, and I won by being able to receive from her. God works through people. See, by working through people, he gets twice the result for the same effort. <laughs> Very efficient God. <laughs> you know? God works through people. It also taught me how Alcoholics Anonymous works. Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic sharing with another. And that's the magic to our deal. That's what makes miracles happen is when one alcoholic shares with another. And there are two winners when that happens. The drunk doing the sharing, the drunk doing the receiving. See, I've told that story. The only story I got. Maybe in 23 years, over a thousand times, I guess. And every time I tell that, I remember that moment of clarity I'm sitting there in that jitter joint, and I know the gig is up. I remember that moment of clarity. I'm convinced that all of us here this morning, sober and alcoholics and honest, have had that moment of clarity. We knew the gig was up. That's God's gift to us. I'm equally convinced that those that come to AA for a while and then leave and are out there drinking and dying today, they had that moment of clarity also. What's the difference? Between those of us that are here sober and those of us that have left, we both had that moment of clarity. 
I think what happens in AA is really pretty simple. What we do in here is we keep that moment alive. We keep it alive. She says, I shared with you my moment of clarity of what it was like and what happened. What have you thought about? And when I'm on that side of the podium and one of y'all is up here and you're sharing your moment of what it was like and what happened and you're keeping your moment alive. By the way, this is the perfect program for people whose root problem is they're selfish, self-centered. Because when you're up here and you're keeping your moment alive, I'm so self-centered, what am I thinking about? <laughs> my moment, screw your deal. You know? <laughs> we keep it alive. And nowhere can you keep that moment alive but when one alcoholic shares with another. You can't keep that moment alive by sharing with your doctor. The doctor doesn't need to hear it. My life depends on hearing about your moment so that my moment stays alive. You can't keep that moment alive by sharing with your therapist. I need to hear about your moment so that my moment stays alive. Only when one alcoholic shares with another can we keep that moment alive. Now what have we shared? I've only shared two things so far, how powerless I was over alcohol and how unmanageable my life was. You keep that moment alive. And it's that moment that is God's gift. See, because the real deal is, is that moment of clarity normally, not all the time, but usually happens before you get to AA. When you show up in AA, you've probably had that moment of clarity. And the proof of that is your last drink. I'm willing to bet a whole lot of money when you had your last drink and you sat that drink down, you had no idea that was your last drink. What happened? That's our story. That's the miracle. The miracle is what happened. We can't make that moment happen. We think we can. Sometimes we we have interventions where we try to make it happen. Something happens. And it always happens. You wake up and all of a sudden you, on TV there's an advertisement for if you've got a drinking problem, call this number. And for some reason you call that number. Or you find an old phone number in your, in your, on your desk. You call that number. Or something happens. That moment of clarity is always, that's God's gift to us. And all we do in here is we keep that moment alive. And it's an incredible, incredible journey. We can't explain how to have it. It's just a miracle. You know, we keep it alive when one alcoholic shares with another. And I'm living in Reno, Nevada, and uh, I've got Don as my sponsor, and I moved to Dallas in uh, 83. I just moved out of my car into a house. <laughs> and I got, a, I got a postcard from my sister, or a Christmas gift from my sister. It's Christmas, and I got a Christmas gift from her. And so I called her to thank her for it. And we're talking, and she said, uh, I, was, I was working in, in the Hilton, making four bucks an hour. And I'm, I'm working there, and she said, you, uh, you're working at the Hilton? I said, yeah. She said, how much are they paying you? I said, four dollars an hour. She said, man, you can get a job. She was living in Dallas, Texas. This is 1982. She said, you can get a job in Dallas doing anything for more than four bucks an hour. I said, well, I, I'm pretty happy here. And she said, well, she sent me the classified ad section. And they, it, was, it was thicker than our whole newspaper, you know? And I didn't know. I didn't want to take a sober geographic. And so I'm talking to my sponsor. I said, you know, she's invited me to come out there and stay with her for a month while I get settled. And uh, look at all these jobs in there, and you know. But I don't know. I'm pretty happy where I am. I don't know whether I don't want. I do not want to take a sober geographic. So my sponsor says, well, do you? Let me ask you a question. He said, you need to go. You need to get out of town. You got some pressure on you. You need to go. I said, no, I don't. I don't need pressure on me. I don't need to go. 
He said, you have to go? You got some girl out there you're running out to? I said, no, I don't have to go out there. He said, you want to go? You want just a, a change of pace? I said, not really. I'm fine. He said, well, if you don't have to go, and if you don't need to go, and if you don't want to go, hell, then you can go. <laughs> and that's true. You never take a sober geographic if you follow that rule, you know? So I moved to, I moved to Dallas in February of 83, and I moved by UPS. I, uh, I boxed everything I owned up into three boxes, and I shipped them to my sister's house, and then I hitchhiked. I had sold that car I was living in for $500 because it threw a rod through the engine, so I sold for $500, and I hitchhiked from Reno, Nevada to Salt Lake City, Utah, because you could fly for $99 one way to Dallas, from Salt Lake to, to Dallas. So I hitchhiked from Reno to Salt Lake, I flew to Dallas, and I landed in Dallas in February of 83. And uh, the first weekend I'm in town, I get, get a sponsor, and my whole life just came together real quick in Dallas. I got back in the insurance business in Dallas. And... Uh, Met my wife in Dallas. Got married in Dallas. Bought a house in Dallas. Uh, got divorced in Dallas. <laughs> and that was a fascinating thing because that was not part of my plan. I didn't think people sober perhaps in the program would ever get divorced. You know? I didn't think, I thought that if you're sober and alcoholics anonymous and you're, and you're living a program and you're, doing the, and you're working with others and you're trying to be honest and you're doing everything that you know is right, to the best of your ability, that, that you wouldn't have a lot of problems. There would be no pain. You know? <clears throat> now, nobody told me that. Nobody told me that if you stay sober and alcoholics anonymous, you practice the program, that you're going to live pain-free. You know? In fact, they, they told me just the opposite. They kind of allude to that in the book where they say, in our adventures before and after, which means you're going to have some adventures after you get sober. You know? But uh, I didn't know that. And it was very bizarre to me. And I'm in all kinds of, uh, just a tremendous amount of pain going through that divorce. And they told me to work with others. So I started working with others and uh, put, put things back in perspective and work, spent a lot of time going to newcomers' meetings, handing out my business card to newcomers. And these newcomers, the problem is when you do that, they start to call you. And so I started sponsoring a lot of newcomers. And I sponsored a bunch. I sponsored like 14 of them, 13 of them. And they were coming out of these treatment centers, and I was unaware of the new, the new stuff they were doing. They would come out of these treatment centers, and they would call me on the phone, and they'd say, John, if you're going to help me, then we need to, uh, we need to get together on, so you'll know a little bit about me and, and, my, and my family of origin. I didn't know that. I didn't know what a family of origin was. And uh, we're going to have to talk about some of my core issues. I didn't know we had core issues. So they would come over to the house, and, and I would ask them, I'd say, what, what do you mean your core, your family of origin, your core issues? They said, well, I come from a very uh, dysfunctional family. It's a very dysfunctional family. And because of that, I've never had any proper role models, which means, you know, I, I, I never have had any that show me how to set proper boundaries. So I don't know how to set boundaries, which, quite frankly, has led to an abandonment issue, <laughs> and which has brought on a sex addiction that's just driving me crazy. And I'm listening to this stuff. I'm exhausted. 
and we're just talking on the phone for five minutes. And I said, we better, you better come on over. We need to figure some stuff out. So they'd come over to the house. They'd bring all these new books with them. And, and uh, I don't know anything about what they're talking about. Don't know anything about it. So they give me these books. I want to tell you, you want to read all that new stuff? That's fine. You know what will happen? You're going to relate. You'll relate to it. And I'm, I'm sitting there relating to it. And I'll tell you why you're relating to it. What they've done very conveniently is they've taken uh, all of our character defects and shortcomings and, and made them issues now. You know? And they've become disorders. They've gone from issues to disorders. So I now have all these character defects that were character defects are now disorders. <laughs> and you can treat a disorder. You know, and so I'm 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 just at, at odds on that stuff because I'm relating to it because they're all my character defects they're talking about in those books, calling them disorders, and I'm not and my guys are getting drunk. I'm not doing I'm not at any value to them at all, and I'm getting sicker and sicker and sicker. I'm in more pain six months into this deal than I was when I got divorced, and I'm not getting well. I go to my sponsor's house and I said, my program is not working. My program is not working, and he said. Why don't you try ours? <laughs> then he asked me some key questions. He said, John, he said, let me ask you something. Are you, how many guys under a year you sponsor? I said, 14. He said, any of them getting well? I said, no, I'm getting sick. Then he asked me a key question. He said, are you passing on to them the, sim, the same simple program that was passed on to you? And I wasn't. And I had to go to those guys and make amends and say, guys, I'm sorry we've been doing this wrong. You do not teach me the program. I'm going to help you with the steps. And that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, because that's what I'm responsible for. I'm, Guys, if you've been around a while, I know how tough it is to sit in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and you hear all this stuff that they're talking about, anger management, everything else that they're going through. I know how tough it is to stand up and, and uh, stay true to the program. You know, it's kind of like you're being ganged up on. But see, that's what I'm responsible for. So it's my responsibility to pass on to you the same program that was passed on to me. And after you've been so nice to me this weekend, I don't want anybody to leave and not know the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that was passed on to me, because that's where my responsibility lies. And the program of A that was passed on to me doesn't say anything about learning to manage or control my issues. You know? In fact, it says just the opposite. It says you can't do it. You can't do it. If I could have done it, I'd have done it 24 years ago. And you'd have a different speaker today. You know, I don't call my sponsor to learn how to manage my life better. I call my sponsor to learn how to surrender my life. You know, and there's a big difference between surrendering your life and learning to manage it better. I can't manage it. I can't control that anger. I've got to give it up. I've got to turn it over to a power greater than myself that will solve my problems. That's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a program that works. 
It really works. And you've, I see him come running into AA. AA is not a fire station. You know, where you come running to the group with your hair on fire because you've been caught. You know? What AA teaches you is not to start the fire. You know? We're going to get rid of all the matches and all the stuff that starts fire in step four and five, six and seven. And we're going to clean up all the fires we started in the past in eight and nine. And then we're going to learn not to start any more fires. You know? And I got all my guys out there, they just keep starting fires. You know? And they would call me up and say, what am I going to tell her? The truth? Oh, God, she'll leave. Probably. (laughs) Well, how can I phrase that so she won't leave? You can't. (laughs) I'm getting a new sponsor. Somebody that understands, you know? See, the program that's passed on to me says, our object, we've had a moment of clarity where we're free from drugs and alcohol now. And now we're, what we're going to do is we're going to keep that moment alive and we're going to find a power greater than ourselves that's going to solve our problems. Now, that all applies if you believe in God. If you really believe that God loves you so much and is so concerned about you that he is personally going to get involved in your life. Yeah, well, come on. You know, there's a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. And, and I, I believe there's a God... And I believe that, that God created the world, but come on, man, he's not personally going to take an interest in me. He's not personally going to solve my problems. That's kind of silly to believe that God himself is going to do that. I mean, no, no. I believe in God, but you know, we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've got to do this. Well, if you believe in God, and you believe in miracles, then you're going to believe in God and believe God either is or isn't, you know? He's either going to perform miracles or he's not going to perform miracles. It's like I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm at my home group. I'm two years sober. I'm at Dallas North. And it's birthday night. Dallas North had grown to be a huge group then. I'm three years sober. And uh, 200 people on birthday night. It goes on forever. And after I'm getting ready to leave and Joanna's working the front desk, Joanna comes up to me and grabs me and she says, Listen, John. She said, A lady called from San Antonio and her son's going to commit suicide. He lives here in Dallas. You want to take that 12-step call? And I said, no, I want to call her first. So I called her in San Antonio. I'm talking to her. She's telling me all about her son. He's going to commit suicide. He's been drinking and drugging for two weeks. He's real screwed up. wants to commit suicide. She said he's so disoriented he couldn't find A's phone number, but he could remember his mama's phone number. So he called his mama and asked his mama to call AA. So I called him on the phone. I told him who it was. I said, you want, to, you want some help? And he said, yeah, I need some help. I'm going to kill myself if I don't get some help. And I said, well, tell me where you are. We'll come get you. And he was, then he started backpedaling. He said, man, I can't tell you where I am. I don't know where I am. I don't know how. I'm so disoriented, I can't tell you how to get here. I said, what's your address? And he said, you'll never find me. It's a brand new street. It's not, a, it's not in Mapsco. It's nowhere. It's just two blocks long. You'll never be able to find me. This isn't working. I said, give me your goddamn address. We'll find you. So he gave me his address. He lived on Dome Street. And I've told this story for 20 years in Dallas, Texas, once a month when I do the steps. At different groups all around Dallas, Fort Worth. So that's thousands of drunks I've told the story to. And every time I tell the story in Dallas, Texas, I say, does anybody in the group know where Dome Street is? In 20 years, nobody knows where Dome Street is. It's only two blocks long. But see, I know where Dome Street is. 
I'm going to write where Dome Street. I have a client that lives on Dome Street. He not only lives on Dome Street, he is literally the next door neighbor, the guy making the phone call. I said, I'm going to write where you are. I'll come get you. I grabbed Tom, guy sponsored, we went to make that talk. That's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information since God works through people, is he? That's just a coincidence. A few years after that, I'm out at DFW going to California on a business trip, and they're at 9 o'clock, plane's supposed to leave, plane didn't leave. They had a big sign that said, plane's been delayed an hour. Came back an hour later and they said, the plane can't go, we've got to change flights. There's a, we're canceling this flight, but there's a plane two gates down leaving for L.A., you can catch that flight. Well, all of us run, 100 of us run down there. There's only 17 seats left. 100 of us want to get on that plane. I'm the second to the last guy to get on the plane. I get on the plane, go back to this one. You can smoke on the airline. One seat left in the smoking section. Right next to the window, right next to that seat is this good-looking guy in a red dress. <laughs> Never forget that red dress. But God is working in my life today, you know. <laughs> so I sit down there. It's a bad seat because she's a chatterbox. Chatter, 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 chatter. Just drive me nuts. You know, I have not had enough coffee for this woman. <laughs> Finally, the plane takes off. She shuts up. She pulls out her needlepoint. She's needlepointing. I look over her needlepoint. She's needlepointing the serenity prayer. <laughs> it's my turn. So I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm needlepoint. I said, I know you're needlepoint, but what is that you're needlepointing? She didn't want to show me. She's embarrassed. She said, oh, it's just nothing. I said, what is that? She finally holds up. She says, oh, they call this the serenity prayer. And I said, oh, man, are you one of those Jesus freaks? She said, no, 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 no. But I am trying to lead a spiritual life. I said, really? So she's going 100 miles an hour. She knows I'm watching her, so she's real nervous. Her hands are sweaty. She's going 100 miles an hour needlepoint. I thought I better stop this poor gal before she breaks a finger. I said, honey, if that's the serenity prayer and you're trying to lead the spiritual life, I said, can I ask you, are you a friend of Bill Wilson's? And she stopped and sighed and looked at me. She said, yeah. Are you? I said, no. <laughs> I said, he died years before I got sober. You know, that's all I was And uh, come to find out, she had two years sober. This was her first trip away from Dallas in sobriety. She was going out there on a training thing with her company. She was going to be gone two weeks and was scared to death. Didn't know a thing about how she was going to stay sober out there. Uh, had her, had her, her first drunk dream the night before, and she, that, that was a premonition that she was going to get drunk in California. Didn't know anybody out there. And so we had a great two-hour meeting, three-hour meeting going out to California. She cried a little bit. I cried a little bit. She said to me, she said, can you believe, I gave her some phone numbers and stuff and people out there so she'd call. And she said, can you believe, I've been trying to quit smoking. I was sitting up in the non-smoking section. When they, now you guys are going to come on. They, I came back here. Uh, to sit. Can you believe God would have me move back here to sit, just so I could sit by you? And I said, hell, he canceled my whole plan to get me to come over here, sit by <laughs> you. <laughs> that's just a coincidence. Like, God ain't going to do that, John. That's crazy. He's not going to cancel a plane so you can make a 12-step call. He's not going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in your life to help you since God works through people. That's not what's going to happen. Come on, that's just a coincidence. Yeah. I'm down in Del Rio, Texas, making a talk in 1990. And I meet this girl Saturday. Her name's Dottie. Dottie E. from Connecticut. And I said, Dottie, what are you doing in, te- in Del Rio, Texas, from Connecticut? She says, well, my husband's in the Navy. We're going to San Diego. Stopped here last night. We're going to go on today, but we decided to spend the day in Del Rio. I called the Andrew group. They told me about this conference, so I'm here at the conference. I said, well, great. Welcome to Texas. I talked Saturday night. I got through talking. Dottie comes up, introduces herself, and she says, John... You grew up in Utah. I said, yeah. She said, do you have any relatives in Orm, Utah? I said, well, I grew up in Orm, Utah. She said, you aren't related to Mark and Betty Joe, are you? I said, well, they're my parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And then Dolly starts to cry and throws her arms around me. She says, I'm married to Tommy. And told me what her last name was. See, Tommy's my first cousin. He's three days older than me in age. We grew up together, ripping and running. And then when we turned 18, I went to college. He joined the Navy. I hadn't seen Tommy in 18 years. I didn't know he was in AA. They met in AA. They got married. She was on her way to see him in San Diego to divorce him. Because Tommy was drunk. He got drunk when he was six years sober and couldn't get back. He had a God problem. We had the same God growing up. And he had a real God deal. And uh, that, we made a phone call. He was drunk that night. But we made a 12-step call on Tommy. You know? and, I, and right now, Tommy's got about 20, about 14 years sober. You know? And that's just coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person. You know the odds of that? She's living in Connecticut. He's in San Diego. I'm in Dallas, and we meet in Del Rio. <laughs> because she decided to spend the day in Del Nobody spends the day in Del Rio. <laughs> you know? That's just coincidence. God ain't going to do that. He's going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information. Since God works through people. I was over in Hawaii at the state convention in Hawaii. Friday morning, I get a phone call. My dad died. Had a heart attack and died in Salt Lake. And uh, so we left Saturday. Had a terrible time getting off the island. We had to take a funny route because all the books, flights were full. We had to go from Hawaii to San Francisco. We had a four-hour layover in San Francisco. And then we had to go back to Utah, from, back to uh, Dallas, then from Dallas to Houston, then from Houston back to Salt Lake. Took us 24 hours. Got there Sunday. We married, buried my dad Monday. And Tuesday, I'm leaving to go back to Dallas because I had some business I couldn't get out of. And I'm at the airport. My son dropped me off early because he was going to work. He was still living in Utah at the time. And so I had about two hours at the airport. I'm just sitting there, and I'm tired. I'm lonely. And I started into that valley. I started thinking, you know, what on earth were you doing in Hawaii? You know, your dad had a heart attack three months prior to that. You knew he wasn't doing well. Yeah, you called your mom before he left. She said he's doing fine. Go ahead and go. But you know what? The good son would have been with his mom taking care of his dad. What were you doing in Hawaii? Just building your ego, talking at that damn AA convention? You should have been with your dad. And right when I'm in the middle of beating myself up, there came a page over the intercom that said, Would a friend of Bill W. pick up a white page you phone? I started laughing too. <laughs> I thought that guy thinks he needs a twelve-step call, you know. So I picked up the phone. This guy I met this guy from Chicago. We met in the coffee shop. His dad had died a year prior to that, you know. I said to the guy, I "said you do you uh, page people a lot for Bill friends of Bill W." Because <laughs> I've never done it before. I just want to see if there's any drunks in Utah, you know. I had a great little meeting before I had to leave, and that just told me, you know what? My dad was going to die. My primary purpose. Just help other alcoholics. I made it to my dad's funeral. My mom's fine. Everything worked out fine. I'm supposed to be with alcoholics, helping other, other alcoholics not die. You know? That's just a coincidence, isn't it? God ain't going to do that. God ain't going to put just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in your life to help you. And I tell that story because I know that in this meeting today, this morning, there are a lot of, somebody here, it's in a lot of pain. It doesn't seem to matter whether you've been sober a month or 20 years. Sometimes sobriety is very painful. And you don't know. You don't know whether you're doing it right or whether you need to get involved in some other kind of stuff or whether 
that God deal is just AA podium rhetoric we talk about to make things feel better. And you don't really know whether God is going to help you or not. And if that's where you are, then you need to know this morning that I know more than ever that God loves us totally. That we have the only disease whose recovery was designed by God himself to be an active participant in that recovery. It's incredible what we got. And if you need to borrow that God till you can find a power of your own that will solve your problems, then do it. Because I've borrowed your God a lot. And the God of my understanding today is willing to go to any lengths to see that you get it. I used to think that was a one-way street, that I had to be willing to go to any lengths to get sober. Today I know that God will go to any lengths to see you get sober. That's a two-way street, man. He will do whatever he needs to do to help you. And it's an incredible gift that we have here. And if you've got that plane, I don't know. I don't know when God will help you, but I know exactly how God will help you. He's going to help you by putting just the right person at just the right time with just the right information in your life. And I appreciate you letting me share. Thank you.